Morning Gateway. Uh, welcome to Palm Sunday. And I'm really glad to see that everybody in Northern Virginia didn't go to that magical place in Florida or Myrtle Beach. So really good to have you. And kids, we're really glad to have you this morning. So uh, boys and girls, I'm going to be talking this morning from one of my favorite stories in the whole New Testament. So after church today, I want you to make sure that you ask your mom and dad about this. I'm going to talk about two sides of ourselves that we need to see and understand, and I want you to make sure that your moms and dads understand both of those sides. For the last six weeks throughout the season of Lent, we've used the image of finding Jesus as a, as a metaphor for uh, making a connection with God and, and uh finding out who we are ourselves and finding peace with God. Here's the theory. If we find Jesus, then we find who we truly are and we find peace and we find a real relationship with God. And this theory is played out throughout the scripture and in many of our lives. Now, over these weeks, we've discussed various things that block our view of Jesus and keep us from finding Jesus. We've talked about uh, our past. We've talked about a wrong view of God. We've, we've, we've talked about our, our stuff. Well, today we're going to talk about a block to finding Jesus that certainly isn't, isn't more obstructing than any of those other topics, but it may be more difficult to recognize. Today we're going to look at a wrong view of ourselves. Sometimes when we look at ourselves, it's like it's like looking in one of those distorted mirrors. Have you ever seen one of those? They, they can either elongate us or they, they scrunch us up or they, they uh, make us look skewed. And, and our mirror prevents us from seeing ourselves rightly. And maybe worse, it can prevent us from seeing Jesus rightly. We'll discover today that there are two very distinct sides of ourselves. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And both of these sides have to be recognized and understood if we're going to find Jesus. And interestingly, both sides of ourselves, they make an appearance in this really fascinating exchange that uh, Jesus had with a, a Pharisee. It's recorded for us in Luke chapter 7. And at the risk of disturbing us, boys and girls, before you get settled in, let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. And I'm going to read this morning, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. And I want you to especially listen to the story that Jesus tells in this passage. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. He asked Jesus over to his house for dinner. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, Look, you know, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answered, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Uh, a certain money lender had two debtors. This is Jesus' story. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, 
he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, uh, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said, Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. He who is forgiven little loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Father, I pray that you would open up our hearts and our chests and massage your truth this morning into us about who we are. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Okay, so the universe is an elegant, exotic, fantastic reflection. It's a glorious, mysterious testimony. We have codified, organized, labeled, analyzed, dissected, and parsed it, and just when we think we have a handle on it, it eludes us. Even the smartest of us, the mystery of the universe sometimes just engulfs us. For example... Did you know, incredibly, when a group of starlings fly together, which they often do, they occasionally form murmurations. We see them across the sky of northern Virginia at certain times of the year. These formations are beautiful, but completely mysterious. No one knows how to explain them. And once in a while, once in a while, starlings bust a move in these murmurations that takes the mystery to a whole nother level. It has utterly confounded the most respected ornithologists for reasons that scientists do not understand. These murmurations occasionally take on the shape of a starling. A giant bird composed of hundreds of birds flying in formation across the sky. Or did you know, last year a group of scientists strapped a GPS device onto a 1,400-pound great white shark. They wanted to track its migration pattern off the coast of southern Florida. And so over the next several days, they watched with interest and then amazement as the shark moved over hundreds of miles in a pattern that formed the shape of a shark. The great white drew a self-portrait the universe is elegant and exotic and glorious and mysterious, and many have tried to explain it as a consequence of a long series of accidents, and that, in my opinion, is a giant leap of faith because this fantastic glory bears the unmistakable fingerprints of design and purpose. And when we back up, we back up enough, back past the quarter-mile perspective from which we can see the starlings form a starling, back further than the dozens of miles perspective from which we can see the shark draw his own self-portrait. When we back up to the distance of nearly eternity, we see clearly that the pinnacle of this created elegance, the high point of the mystery, is us. 
human beings. We are the most confounding, mystifying, glorious capstone on top of the glory. We are what the psalmist called crowned with glory and honor. That's the truth about who we are. And that's one side of our identity that we cannot lose sight of. We can't lose sight of that. If we do, we'll never find Jesus. A generation of our children right now are suffering under an oppressive burden of anxiety and despair, I believe, in large part because they have not caught sight of their own glory. They don't know who they are, and that prevents them from finding Jesus. When we hold a wrong view of ourselves, when we wallow in self-pity, for example, our vision is blocked of nearly everything else. The other morning I woke up, uh, this was a couple of weeks ago, it was still really cool, and, and I had, you know, one of those sheens of, uh, you know, glass, of ice on my windshield, and I was in a hurry a little bit late, so I took out my scraper and I scraped, but I couldn't get very far. I got in my car, thought I'd be okay, I'd already started it, had the defrost on blast, I put it in drive, looked in my camera, back out of the driveway, and then I put it in gear to go forward and I can't see a thing. So I have to do one of these things where I I, kind of have to look at the just very bottom of the windshield and the next thing I know I had driven into my neighbor's curb. This is what happens to my life when I lose sight of who I am. I can't make progress. I, I hit the curb. We are the kind of people, listen to this, We are the kind of people who can throw ourselves at the feet of the Son of God, all caps, and he will welcome us. We can make the elaborate displays of affection toward him, and he will return our affection. That's who we are. We are the kind of people who can access and receive our own salvation. Your faith has saved you, Jesus told this woman in a kind of freakish acknowledgement of her power. Now, our forgiveness is bought by the sacrifice of Jesus. His blood makes our salvation possible. He is the source. And certainly, this Pharisee and probably everyone in the room was stunned at Jesus' audacity to proclaim this woman's forgiveness. Who does this man think he is? It's, but it's just as astounding that he declared that her faith had saved her. We can do that. He is the fountain, but we can walk up, draw those waters, and drink That's who we are. We have that power. And when we don't understand who we are, when we lose sight of what we deserve, when we settle for less, when we believe the lies of those who who have belittled us or, or demeaned us because of their own damage, then we don't find Jesus. Now, not only are we miserable, but we block our view of the one thing that could set us free. I want to borrow uh, an illustration language from uh, C.S. Lewis. In in one of his essays, Lewis talked about how we settle for, quote, making mud pies in the slum when we could be enjoying a glorious vacation at the beach. In other words, we allow ourselves to be very partially satisfied with drink or sex, or money, or temporary distraction, or fleeting pleasure, instead of accessing the infinite joy that is at God's right hand. And when we do that, we're lost. We run into the curb. Here's the point. You are fantastic in body, mind, and spirit. You were designed and built with incredible intention. Generations 
of DNA were rightly mixed in a highly calibrated concoction. A kaleidoscope of experiences were rightly curated. A large menu of, of delicately applied influences applied to you. You at this very time, in this moment, not if only some tougher version of you, not if only some, if I were only smarter version, not if, if only some better version, you for this very time, for very specific, God-honoring, glorious reasons, you. And what does God intend for you to do with all this glory that he has packed inside you? He intends for you to write out a self-portrait. He intends for you to be fully you. He intends for your life to live out the glory that he has invested you, showing the world who you really are, and as a result, showing the world him, God, because you are his reflection. Your jar of perfume, your, your worship, your tears, your hair wiping away those tears, your faith, you. And if you've known Jesus, and I know most of you have, if you've found him at points throughout your life, then you understand this, this, the woman in this passage. You are the same as this woman, the same abandoned. The same faith, the same glory lives in your chest. Don't lose sight of that. Recognize your glory this morning and own it. Receive the message of it. Take a deep breath with your own spiritual lungs. Draw in the character and the power and the sovereignty of God Almighty. Your chest can do that, and then your breath can spill it out over every encounter of every day. Your hands are the hands of the Son of God, all caps. Your eyes are his eyes, and it took generations to make you. Glorious, mysterious, enchanting, powerful you. And there are some situations within which only you can be the right solution. This is the awesome, liberating message that Jesus delivered to this woman. And he's here to deliver it to us and we must hear it if we're going to see Jesus. You are glorious. But Dr. Jekyll also makes an appearance in this encounter. Dr. Jekyll reminds us of ourselves as well because he also lives in our chest. And we must understand him while we have to remember and celebrate and release the glory of Mr. Hyde. We have to resist Dr. Jekyll. He would draw a very dark and different portrait if we let him. So I want us to understand the circumstances behind uh, Luke 7, the passage that I just read. Jesus was invited to dinner uh, at this Pharisee's home named Simon, and Jesus would have been sitting, it was the ancient Near East, Jesus would have been sitting at a very low table. Some of you who have been to other parts of the world, you have eaten like this. He would have been sitting like this. And he would have been managing his food like this, and his feet would have been behind him, easily accessible for someone to come in and, and touch or even cry over. Now, the interruption like the one that we find here in this passage, it was not unheard of in the ancient Near East. They had a very different sense of 
personal and private space than we do. So someone coming into your home unannounced, it wouldn't have been completely unusual or rude. Plus, plus it's very likely that Jesus and Simon would have been eating in a courtyard off of the front of his house. So imagine like a, a large front porch, and not necessarily on one of our homes, but think of like a, an old New England village in the 1800s, and you're sitting out with your family and some friends on your front porch. It's very large, and it's very near the road. Someone walking by on the road right in front of your house, it would have been a little ruder not to say something than to say something and even to open the gate and come in. A person appearing at this kind of gathering uninvited was not terribly unusual. What was unusual is who the interrupter was and what she did when she showed up. Luke tells us that she was considered sinful. The word he used here suggests a person of notoriously bad character, probably a prostitute. Her presence anywhere near Uh, Someone like the Pharisee Simon was very surprising. But to intrude on this meal in his home and in such a showy way, goodness, had she had some kind of life-changing encounter with Jesus earlier in the day? Or had she followed him for some time? We don't know, but it's pretty clear that much more was involved than just that she had heard about who Jesus was. What was this woman thinking? We don't know that for sure either, but we do know that in her thinking, listen to this, in her thinking, she was getting it far more right than wrong. Now maybe, maybe she had allowed herself to have a slightly debased view of herself. Maybe, maybe that's, that's how, she, maybe she had forgotten her own glory. Maybe that's how she had ended up in the state she was in, but She knew Jesus would accept her. She knew Jesus could help. She knew that she needed to be at Jesus' feet, as I said, far more right than wrong. And Simon sees this display, and to him, this is unseemly to the extreme. So much so that he begins to change his opinion about Jesus. It's obvious that he had been thinking, maybe this teacher is a prophet. But the fact that he doesn't know who this woman is, I mean, That should have been obvious just from the way she's dressed, much less the way she carried herself. How could he not know? How could he allow this behavior? Jesus interrupted Simon's inner dialogue and said, Simon, I've got something to tell you. And in that interruption, Jesus offers a clear indication that he knew what Simon was thinking. I believe Simon was intrigued, and he was taken a bit aback by Jesus' perception. Okay, teacher, tell me. And then Jesus offered a parable of someone being forgiven a great debt and someone else being forgiven a small debt. And the conclusion Simon agrees with is uh, surprising or maybe it's obvious. Jesus' conclusion is that the greater debtor would have the greater love for the one who'd forgiven them the lesser debtor would have the lesser love. Let's say that again. The greater debtor would have the greater love for the one who had forgiven him. The lesser debtor would have the lesser love. So, don't miss this question. Who was Simon in that parable? And who are we in that parable? Now, this was a a very important story for me personally, early in my own spiritual journey. I was talking the other night 
with Diane about this, and she actually remembered the period in my, I knew her, we weren't married yet, but she remembered the period in my life when I struggled with this story. And she remembered how important it eventually became to me. I was in a period of being pretty on fire for God, and that was new for me. And I stumbled into this story one time in just normal Bible reading. I remember being disappointed and a little upset with God. I mean, I'm basically a good person. I'm nice almost all the time, pleasant even most of the time. I've hardly ever broken any of the Ten Commandments and none of the really big ones, you know, the ones that get you in a lot of trouble. Let's face it, I'm more like Simon. Or I saw myself. More like Simon certainly saw himself. I wouldn't have been weeping over Jesus' feet, wiping my, my tears with my hair. I had hair at the time. Simon and me, Simon and me, we've been forgiven little. Now, part of the explanation for that is just all that. It's just my personality. I never wept over anything at that point in my life. That should tell you something. God has adjusted the passion meter in my heart. And I'm certainly not one who's prone to those kinds of elaborate, uncontrolled displays of affection. I'm not even much of a hugger. But part of the reason I'm more like Simon, I knew is because I hadn't really been forgiven very much. And weirdly, that just didn't seem fair to me. Do you follow? That didn't seem fair to me. Was I perpetually relegated to some kind of second-class love for God? Was I going to always be like Simon? Was I never going to be one of those people who's really passionate about God and and fired up for him? Did I need to go out and start sinning big so I could love big? Is that how it works, God? After Jesus told the story, he said something that really struck me this week, kind of fresh and new for the first time. He said, Simon, do you see this woman? That's an interesting thing to say, isn't it? Because Simon was obviously familiar with the woman. Of course, he'd noticed she was in his house, and he'd certainly assessed her. But did he see her? I came into your house, Simon, and you didn't even give me water to wash my feet. That would have been hospitable, even customary, but you didn't. It's okay, no big deal. But this woman, she washed my feet with her hair and wet them with her tears. Simon, do you see the passion? Did you notice the humility? But Simon hadn't seen And why had he not seen this woman? This, I believe, is the point for us. I believe this is the point Jesus wants us to see. This, I believe, is where Dr. Jekyll gets exposed. I believe Simon could not see this woman because he did not see himself. Not really. He only saw the elongated mirror version of himself. In my life, over the course of weeks and months, Maybe longer, really. This parable kept rattling around in my head. It bothered me. It bothered me like a splinter in my spirit. I want to be passionate about God. I want to be one of those people, but am I just Simon? Is that what I get for being pretty healthy, pretty good guy? And slowly. And now I can see unmistakably and inexorably, God, slowly, God began to make gentle cuts 
and then peel away the layers of the onion that is my life, and I began to discover what an absolute mess I am. How could I be such a mess, and why did I not see all of this before? In fact, I started to think that I don't ever get it right, really. I also began to see my deep commitment to myself. I'm exactly the kind of person who, apart from Christ, would sell his soul for a few moments of fleeting pleasure. Literally, the basest kind of pleasure, anything pleasurable. I love pleasure. And worse still, I really can't love you. I can't love you apart from Christ in my life. Two reasons that I cannot love you. Number one, I'm just too involved with myself. And number two, I need you to affirm me. Really, I need you to applaud me. And I can't think about what you need because I so desperately need you to be about me. And if you think I'm overstating, I'm not. And slowly, over the course of months, I began to see what a great debtor I am. I am literally worse than all the people that I could so easily categorize as mess up. People like you. Jesus, I'm really glad those people are in church. They need it. Wait, Ed, you need it. You need it more than they do. Their life is a mess in some ways, but at least they see it. They're way ahead of you. And little by little, a new passion was added to my spiritual life because I saw myself. And that enabled me to see Jesus. I saw the glory that God had invested in my life. Glory! And I saw the depths of depravity that hangs there constantly ready to run the show if I give it room. I saw how much God had invested in me, literally himself. He has invested himself in me. And I saw the great depths of the darkness that I was capable of, that part of me longed for. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up if they would. Listen, let's wrap this up. Recognizing Dr. Jekyll is not self-pity. This is not, oh, I'm, I'm such a bad person. No one likes me. This is not believing all those terrible lies that you've been told. No. This is recognizing the horror show that is your life apart from Christ. The horror show that is your heart if Jesus is not part of who you are. This is seeing the true mess that you make of things every time you try to take control. This is seeing yourself unmasked and needy and running to wet Jesus' feet with your tears. And recognizing Mr. Hyde is not arrogance. This is, this is not self-congratulations. This is, this is genuine amazement at what, God has, what, at what God has done in you and what he's made of you, all of who you are. This is drawing your own glorious, powerful self-portrait in your actions and in your words every day, knowing that if you draw well, the world will see Christ. And when we really see ourselves in all of our glory and in all of our mess, we are finally released to see Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart that we would be able to see not only you and your glory and your greatness, but that we would see ourselves. For so many of us, Lord, our hearts have grown uh, still and cold because we, we don't see ourselves. When we look, we see this distorted version of ourselves and we feel awful about ourselves and we don't see our glory. And so, and so, we overcompensate. And then we see with arrogance. We see an elongated version of ourselves. Father, forgive us. And show us who we are so we can we can see you. So that we can run to you and fall at your feet, wet your feet with our tears, wipe them with our hair. And every bit of perfume we have pour out on you. Enable us, Lord, to uh, this week to draw out a glorious self-portrait. Our glory, not our arrogance, not our self-pity, our glory on display. 